What book in the Bible deals with false teachers? What book in the Bible, the entire book, not merely one chapter, but the entire book deals with false teachers? What book in the Bible is written by a brother of the Lord Jesus Christ? James is. There's another book written by a brother of the Lord. Jude. And turn in your Bibles to the book of Jude this evening. Written by a brother of the Lord Jesus. And also written to deal with false teachers. And we will be reading Jude 9. A gem from Jude. You may know that the entire book of Jude is found in 2 Peter chapter 2. Not every verse, but many of the verses. So 2 Peter 2 and Jude overlap. And tonight we're coming right into the middle because some people believe that 2 Peter was not written by Peter because it's so similar to Jude. Both 2 Peter and Jude, 2 Peter 2 and Jude, have numerous examples from the Old Testament. Sodom and Gomorrah, Noah and the Flood, Enoch. And here in Jude 9, we have the body of who? Look in Jude 9, the body of who? Moses, where was Moses buried? We don't know, but that doesn't mean no one knows. Someone does know, and there was a fight about it once. And tonight's sermon is about the fight over the funeral of Moses. And what that can teach us about humility. Let's read Jude 9, the fight at the funeral. Michael the archangel... When arguing with the devil, he disputed about the body of Moses, but he dared not bring against him an accusation, but said, the Lord rebuke you. Let's read that again. Jude 9. Yet Michael the archangel when contending or arguing or debating with the devil, he disputed about the body of Moses. But he dared not bring against him a railing accusation, but said, the Lord will rebuke you. Of all the creatures... In God's plan, each knows his proper place, but man. Can you guess what poet said that? I'll give you ten rand if you can. Of all the creatures in God's plan, each knows his proper place, 
but man. And tonight I would like you to see outside of man the most glorious of God's creations. I'd like you to study angels for a moment. Now, most evangelicals, most reformed people don't think much about angels. We say that's, that's what the charismatics talk about. Have you ever seen the TV show Touched by an Angel? They say these people want to talk about angels and all this, and they're the people who go down to CNA and buy the card that has all the little, the little naked babies with wings on the back. You buy that for mom, that'll make mom feel good. And you get the fridge magnets that have all the little angels. Angels. And then when you have a little baby, they say, oh, he's such a little angel. But I would like to suggest to you that the biblical teaching of angels is something any red-blooded man can shake in front of. Something that every woman can be amazed at. And so tonight, I'd like to direct your attention to the biblical doctrine of angels and then their application to humility. Now, the teaching about angels should take almost the whole time, and then at the very end, I'm going to put a hook. That's what I'm going to try to do tonight. Let's see if I can do it. What is, let's just go through verse 9 and just try to understand it. Verse 9. Yet Michael, the what? Jude 9. Michael, the what? Archangel. Now that's almost exactly transliterated from Greek. Because they didn't know what it meant in Greek either. The Greek letters are just A-R-K, angel. And they translated it right over, archangel. Well, before I can ask what an archangel is, let's take the word apart and ask, what is an angel? What is an angel? Can anyone tell me, if you just had to summarize an angel in a sentence or a phrase, what would you say, Lloyd? What is an angel? A messenger of God. That's pretty good. A messenger of God. Callie? Wow, did you read my notes? That's the first line right there. The most basic concept of, an, of a spirit is a mind without a body because angels are spirits. Hebrews 1.14, they are all ministering spirits. Before we get to messenger, we have to start with the idea of what exactly is it. It's a spirit. It's a being without a body. Isaac Watts says, angels are minds without bodies. That really helped me. I never put it in those words before. What is, Isaac Watts, by the way, is the man who wrote that hymn we just sang. Come, let us join our cheerful song with angels. Well, he's writing about them. He better know what they are. He says they are minds without bodies. It's a spirit. Hebrews 1, 7. 
He makes his angels spirits. God formed man's body and then added the spirit. Genesis 2 verse 7. So that means that spirits can live independently of bodies. Psalm 104 verse 29. You hide your face. They are dismayed. You take away their spirit. They turn to dust. You take their spirit away and it's as if, it's as if the body's going to die without the spirit. But it never says that the spirit dies without the body. 2 Corinthians 4.16 We do not lose heart, though our outer man is decaying. That's our bodies. Our inner man, our spirit, is being renewed day by day. We all live in the physical world, but there is another world that we are blind to. There's nothing more likely than right now, there are angels and spirits all around us. There's nothing more likely than that all around this town, there are demons. There is an invisible world. This invisible world is spoken of many times in the Bible. Sometimes they can be seen. In Genesis 19, angels came to visit Lot. When God created man, he combined the soul or the spirit and the body. But when he created angels, he created them without bodies. Which is why in 2 Kings 6, the Assyrians gathered together to attack Israel. And God tells Elisha, So Elisha tells the king of Israel, and he prepares his defenses. And again, the Assyrians try to do a sneak attack on Israel. But the sneak attack is foiled because God tells Elisha, and Elisha tells the king. And after three times, the king of Assyria is angry, and he calls his generals together and says, Which one of you is for the king of Israel? One of you is a spy. And one of them says, No, no. They have a man of God, Elisha. And he talks to God. And God tells them, it's not us, it's him. So the king does something very foolish. We're going to get to this sometime next year. The king says, okay, then let's sneak up on Elisha. Now if you can't sneak up on the king, uh, on the country, because Elisha talks to God, why are you going to try to sneak up on Elisha? So they try to sneak up on Elisha and they surround Elisha's town in Dothan. They surround the town with soldiers. Elisha knows about it. He goes to bed and sleeps nicely. In the morning, early, the servant wakes up early and runs out to get water. And when he goes out to get water, he sees all these soldiers coming back and shouting, Elisha, wake up! They're here! Elisha says, relax, relax. The ones with us are more than with them. And the servant says, how can that be? Elisha saw what was invisible. Do you know what happens in the story? Raise your hand if you know what happens in the story. Good, then you know, then I don't even have to tell you. Elisha prays for the servant and says, Oh Lord, I pray you, open his eyes so that he can see. And the Bible says, The Lord opened the eyes of the young man, and he saw, and behold, the mountains were full. Of horses and chariots of fire. 
all around the city. It's as if the city was like Mutari in Zim, where there's mountains all around. And then he steps out and he sees the enemy down here in the ground. There's 3,000 of them. But then up on the mountain, there's 50,000, 200,000, 500,000, a million, all filling the mountains and not just normal soldiers, fiery soldiers. And then the case goes on that the angels don't do anything. They just watch. And the army of the Assyrians never even knew the angels were there. Only Elisha. And then God kindly let that young man see the angels as well. How many times are there armies of angels all around us? And I'll point out to you that in 2 Kings 6, the angels don't do anything. God wins without their help. They're just there to watch. Isn't that wonderful? To have a God so powerful that he calls together his armies just to watch him win by himself. Angels are glorious spirits. And they are very numerous. Revelation 5.11 Then I looked and I heard the voice of many angels around the throne and the living creatures and the elders and the number of the angels was myriads of myriads and thousands of thousands. That Greek word myriad means 10,000. But when it's put together, I, I read it just now, myriads and myriads. In the King James it says 10,000 times 10,000. Most Greek scholars believe that when you put 10,000 and 10,000 together in ancient literature, it means uncountable. It's just a sea that stretches on and on of these angels, these fiery, flaming beings. The angels are an army in 1 Kings twenty-two nineteen. They fill the mountains in 2 Kings 6. Revelation 12, verse 4 says there's two angels for every demon. They are compared to the stars in Job 38, verse 7. It might mean that there are as many angels as there are stars. Some scientists have estimated that there are 10 to the 24th power of stars. Do you know what number that is? That means, when you hear someone say 10 to the something power, it means you add that many zeros after the 10. 10 with 24 zeros. 10 times 10 times 10 times 10 times 10, 24 times. That's a lot of stars. And Job 38 implies that there might be as many stars or as angels as there are stars. If an earthly king displays his glory by having 25 cabinet members. No, no. 200 cabinet members. No, I have 10,000 people serve me. I'm the greatest king then what would you say for a king who has 10 to the 24th power of servants all around his throne? Angels are terrifying to behold. Have you ever read carefully the account of the resurrection? 
When Jesus rose from the dead, the women came to the grave. And this is what they found. Behold, a severe earthquake had occurred. An angel of the Lord, one angel, descended from heaven and came and rolled back the stone and sat on it. You ever think about that? That's some nerve. He pushes it back and sits down to watch what he's done. And his appearance, the angel's appearance, was like lightning. Paint that for me. Find a painter who can paint what a person looks like if they look like lightning. His clothing was white as snow. The guards shook for fear of him and became like dead men. Notice this. He can move a tremendously heavy stone by himself. Notice this. He looks like lightning. Notice this. His shape was so terrifying that trained Roman soldiers, the strongest military in the world, with their weapons against an unarmed man, passed out. In Revelation 10 verse 1, the angel is clothed with a cloud. His face looks like the sun. Imagine that, meeting someone who's so bright you can't even look at their face. And that's a created being. And this is amazing. In Revelation 10 verse 1 it says, his legs, they're covered with a robe, right? No. His legs are like pillars of fire. That's terrifying. His face looks like a burning ball of fire. He's dressed in a cloud, but I can see his legs sticking out of the cloud. It's like two pillars of fire. This is no CNA gift card greeting. This is not some pretty little thing we put to decorate a lady's tea. This is a terrifying messenger. A servant of the ancient of days. Scripture records at least four different kinds of these angelic spirits. Cherub. Do you know what a cherub is? They're recorded a number of times in the Bible. In Genesis 3.24, a cherub was given a flaming sword to guard the entrance to the Garden of Eden. Do you think he's still there? Of course he's not, because the flood took care of the Garden of Eden. But imagine that. I've sometimes heard people say about little babies, oh, he's a little cherub. A cherub was a terrifying warrior with a flaming sword that kept people out of the garden. In 2 Samuel twenty-two eleven, God rides on a cherub. We saw that just last week. In Psalm 18... He rides on the cherub. Before Lucifer fell, he is called a cherub. Lucifer, the greatest of all angels. And I'll remind you, next week we're going to study the humility of Satan. You think that's a joke? Come back next week. In Ezekiel 28, it describes him as the greatest of all the angels, and he's called a cherub. The Ark of the Covenant had cherubs carved above it. These were angels with wings. Most angels in the Bible are not described with wings. There are only two kinds, or maybe three, that are described 
with wings. Cherubs are described with wings. The second kind of angels. Can anyone guess what they are? They're in one of the songs we sang. I think we sang it tonight in song number 28. Okay, we're going to get to that one, not archangels. That's number four. Seraphs or seraphim. Seraphim is the plural in Hebrew. Hebrew makes a plural by the letters I am. So if you hear seraph, that's one. Seraphim, that's many. Seraph, that's one. Seraphs, that's two. Seraphs are only found a few times in the Bible. In Isaiah 6, the Bible says, Seraphim stood above him, each having six wings. With two he covered his face. With two he covered his feet. And with two he flew. What is a seraph? A seraph is a Hebrew word. They just transliterated it. Why? Because Hebrew lexicons say it means a flaming serpentine form. Two times in the book of Isaiah, seraph is translated as dragon. What are these angels flying around the presence of God with six wings, covering their face, covering their feet, Flying, saying, holy, holy, holy. The Hebrew lexicon says they are serpentine flames. Serpents. Dragons. Some kind of terrifying creature. Why do you think Isaiah fell down and said, woe is me? He saw these angels. He saw God. And God's attendants are dressed in a way that would point to his dignity and his majesty. Well, there's another kind of angel. They're described in the book of Revelation. Only in Revelation. But in Revelation chapter 4, 5, 6, 7. 4, 5, 6, 7. Straight up. And then jump. 14, 15, 19. They're called the four living creatures. It's as if John is transported into heaven in Revelation chapter 4 and doesn't even know what to call these things he sees. He says the one has the face of a lion. The other the face of a calf. The other the face of a man. The other the face of an eagle. What do those picture? Some people have said the four gospels. Some people say the creatures in Ezekiel. Ezekiel chapter 1 verses 4 to 14 has four living creatures. But there it says each creature, the first living creature has the face of a lion, a calf, a man, and an eagle. The second one has the the face of a lion, a calf, a man, and an eagle. So each of the living creatures in Ezekiel has all four faces depending on which way it's looking. What does that mean? It means this, though you're going to have a very difficult time painting that picture, when you get to heaven, you're going to see sights so wonderful for your mind that you're going to say, John was exactly right, but he only, he he just scratched the surface. It wasn't even, it wasn't even a tenth of what I'm seeing, but if I had to write a book, I also would say, four living creatures... A lion, an eagle, a man, and a calf. That's what I would have said. But how much more is there? Apostle Paul said, We see through a glass into the dark. 
but someday face to face. These living creatures are glorious. They have a glorious shape and a glorious person. They are always, the four living creatures are always described in the Bible as before the throne of God saying, holy, holy, holy. Apparently, they are unique servants who constantly say before God's throne to add honor and beauty and dignity and glory to his infinite beauty. Number four, fourth kind of angel, cherub, seraph, living creatures, four living creatures, archangel. Only Michael is called an archangel and a chief prince. Book of Jude 9 and also Daniel chapter 10. A chief prince. Prince. As if there's ranks. In Revelation 12, he, Michael, leads an army of angels against the dragon. The word Satan means enemy. In Revelation, he calls him the dragon. Apparently, there are good dragons because there are the seraphs before the throne of God. But then there is the dragon, Satan. And Michael leads all the forces of heaven against the dragon. He defeats the dragon at the very beginning of time. Michael fought against demonic forces again in the book of Daniel. In Daniel chapter 9, Daniel fasts for three weeks because he read the book of Jeremiah. Daniel and Jeremiah were contemporaries. When Jeremiah was 50 or 60 years old, Daniel was a young boy. Daniel goes into exile when the Babylonians take Judah. Jeremiah dies a few years later. But his book is there. And Daniel reads the book of Jeremiah. And in chapter 29, it's written that Israel will go into captivity for 70 years. Daniel reads that and says, 70 years. When did the 70 years start? Because I want to calculate when the 70 years will end. So Daniel's now becoming an old man, 70 years old or so. And he says, wait a minute. These 70 years should be ending any time now. What's happening? Let me read and study. He's trying to study, but he can't figure out when the 70 years begin, so he fasts. He realizes that Jeremiah was rebuking the people of Israel, so he fasts and confesses his sin and the sin of the people in Daniel chapter 9. Why does he fast? Because he says, we've been in captivity for 70 years, but we still haven't repented. And the 70 years are going to end. Then what will happen? What will happen if the 70 years end and we still haven't repented? So Daniel begins repenting in Daniel chapter 9. He fasts for three weeks as an older man. And while he's fasting then, after three weeks, Michael comes to him and says, I wanted to come earlier, but the prince of Persia stopped me. Which implies that there is a demon who has some kind of power over Persia. And he stopped the good angel who was coming with the answer to Daniel's prayer. And then the angel says, 
But Michael stood with me, and he fought against that demon. Can you imagine that kind of cosmic warfare? It's invisible. It's happening while the believers prayed. Michael was involved in that. And in 1 Thessalonians 4.16, the Bible says, For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout, the voice of the archangel and the trumpet of God. Someday when Jesus comes back, we're not only going to see a white horse coming out of heaven, we're going to hear a shout from the archangel. What will that sound like? We're going to hear a trumpet. What will that sound like? Michael's going to be there at the second coming. He was there way at the beginning when when Satan was kicked out. And he's going to be there at the very end when we go up. According to Jewish intertestamental literature, such as the book of Enoch, chapter 20. First Enoch, chapter 20. Michael was one of seven archangels. That's from the Net Bible. I don't know if that's true. That's according to Jewish rabbinic teaching. Here's the point. I've taken all that time to explain Archangel from Jude 9. Now I've got to do the rest of the verse. An Archangel is a glorious prince among the spirits of heaven. But look down in Jude 9 and and tell me, what does the prince do? What does this archangel do? In in Jude 9, he does two things. There are two verbs there. What are the two things he does? Uh, What did you say? Disputes and one more thing. Depending on your translation. But there are two verbs in Greek, and most English translations have both verbs. He argued and disputed, or he debated and disputed, or he answered and debated. Do you have two verbs in your Bible? Lloyd, can you read yours? Contending and disputing. Debating and arguing. What does this angel do? He goes toe-to-toe with the most powerful spirit in the universe by himself. You can't do that. He did. I can't. There is no other record in the Bible of a single spirit opposing Satan. I'm not counting Jesus because he's not merely a spirit, he's God. Yes, Jesus does oppose Satan. Michael the archangel says, I'll fight him. I'll debate him. I'll stand up against him. Next week we're going to see the glory of Satan. He was created with unusual wisdom. He was created with unusual power. If it's a fight with words or if it's a fight with power, 
Michael is going to match him. It's an amazing display of Michael's authority and power and greatness. Satan was able to convince unfallen man to sin. What a task that would have been. Satan was able to do that to men who had no sin. They had no inclination to do wrong. Adam and Eve loved God and had no sin nature in their hearts. They had no bad environment around them. What would make them sin? Satan said, I can do it. I have the skill. No one else does, but I could make them fall. Satan was able to convince one third of the angels to follow him. Satan was able to convince the entire world, 2 Corinthians 4.4. 4, the God of this world has blinded the eyes of those who do not believe the truth. Michael not only opposes him militarily in Revelation 12 and Daniel 10, but intellectually. Aristotle said, if it is a shame for a man not to be able to defend himself with his hands, how much more is it a shame for him not to be able to defend himself with his mind and his tongue? For man is chiefly an intellectual being. That here's an angel who's not even a body. He's a mind without a body. Yeah, maybe Michael's strong. Maybe he can fight back in Revelation 12. Maybe he can fight back at the beginning of time when he threw Satan out. But maybe Satan says, yeah, you can fight me. You have this power. You have the mind, though. I'm the mind. I get a third of the angels to follow me. And Michael says, okay, I'll debate you intellectually. This is a being beyond your comprehension. This is an angel who is beyond you. Michael is a military leader of great, perhaps unmatched authority. But he's not only a military leader, he's a brilliant thinker and communicator. He is a skilled debater. He can hold his own against the accuser. But that's not the only thing in this passage. What does Michael not do? There's two things. Look in the passage. He does not dare. He does not dare. And he does not bring an accusation. He cannot lift himself up to attack Satan in one way. He will not rebuke him. He defers to who in verse 9? Well, well, tell me the word of verse 9. The Lord. Who is the Lord? Now, I understand the Lord can be different things depending on the context. It's the Greek word kurios. Kurios, Lord. Look back through the book of Jude and see if you can find any other times that the word Lord is used in this book to tell me who is the Lord. Can you find any other times that the word Lord is used? Verse 4. Who is it in verse 4? Is Jesus Christ in verse 4? Do you see that? It's the same Greek word, kurios. Look at verse 14. 
Who is it in verse 14? Who is the Lord who will come with 10,000 saints? That's Jesus. Look in verse 17. Who's the Lord in verse 17? Who's the Lord in verse 21? And depending on your translation, look in verse 25. Jesus Christ. Now go back to verse 5. Who's the Lord in verse 5? I will therefore put you in remembrance, though you once knew this, how that the Lord, having saved the people out of the land of Egypt, who brought the Israelites out of Egypt? Jehovah. Do we have any debate about that? Who brought the Israelites out of Egypt? Is it Jehovah? Do we all agree? We all know it's Jehovah. Jude grew up with a man. They played together when they were boys. Jude didn't believe for a while. In John 7, verse 6, all the brothers of our Lord come to him and say, hey, if you're ever really the Messiah, go up to the feast. And Jesus says to them, the world hates me. Can you imagine saying that to your brothers? And you're part of the world, you all hate me. But after the resurrection, his brothers were converted. That's amazing. And then Jude looks back and remembers and says, oh, my brother was the Kurios. He was the Lord. He was the power. He was the authority, the king. He was the one on top of it all. In fact, he was Jehovah back there taking us out of Egypt. Tell that to your some friends. We were on the chat group and they were saying, oh, oh, he's not God. He's never called God. Here's the brother of Jesus saying, Oh, he's the Lord. He's the one who brought them out of Egypt. The Lord rebuke you. Michael may fight against Satan, but there comes a point when he says, that's too far for me. No, Jesus can do that. Not me. That's his role. Michael has no pride. You're the greatest in the universe outside of God. There's only one archangel. What, they said maybe there's seven? That's not in the Bible. If there's seven. So there's seven? You're one of seven greatest in the, in the universe? I can't do that. Let Jesus do that. Michael knows that he has limits. But false teachers do not. Look at verse 8 in the book of Jude. Likewise also, these filthy dreamers defile the flesh, despise dominion, and speak evil of angelic powers. 
Or maybe your Bible says angelic majesties. Or if you have the old King James, it says dignities. False teachers talk badly about Satan. Look in verse 10. These, these people, what people in verse 10? Do you see Jude verse 10? What people in verse 10? The false teachers. These false teachers speak evil of the things about which they know nothing. But what they know naturally is brute beasts. In those things they corrupt themselves. <clears throat> false teachers will put out bummer stickers that say, Shut up. And then the name of the fallen, the leader of the fallen angels. They will talk and, oh, oh, we bind you. And they'll talk with this bravado. Michael doesn't talk that way. He fought him 6,000 years ago. He fought him 3,000 years ago in the days of Daniel. But he's not going to step past his bounds. But you, false teacher, you, you want to do that? Unbelievers mock demons because they have no sense of who they are. Unbelievers don't truly understand angelic powers, and they don't understand who they are as people. They love big talk about, we are children of the living king. We have kingdom authority. They love to talk like that because they love everything that boosts their prideful feeling of themselves. They love to feel great. Isn't that just what our Lord said? Watch out. The scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, they love the chief seats and to be called of men, rabbi, master, teacher. They love it. When men look well at them, it's like feeding them. They say, I'll pay anything to eat at that restaurant. But look at Michael. If glorious, fiery beings, cosmic generals and masters of debate are restrained, how much more should we be? If they can hold themselves in, how much more should we be? Sinners. Bound to bodies. These spiritual beings are as terrifying as walking flames, walking fires, talking lightning, thinking wind. Can you imagine that? But they are immortal, invisible warriors who are not bound by physical laws. And if men of the world ever saw things like these angels, they would call them what? If men of this world ever could see angels, what would they call them? Gods. I know because Paul tells us. Listen to this verse from 1 Corinthians 8. There is no such thing as an idol in the world, and there is no God but one. For even if there are so-called gods, whether in heaven or on earth, as indeed there are many gods and many lords... 1 Corinthians 8, 4 and 5. He knows. They're, people of the world, they've had visions. And they say, well, that's a God. But there is only one true God. But I want to close with this. Angels are only 
the first drop in the ocean of God's majesty. And now let me borrow the mind and heart of another man because I am just, I'm just a child. And I want to take C.S. Lewis. Clive Staples Lewis was an atheist, a gifted teacher in Oxford. Died the same day as Aldous Huxley, the Eastern philosopher, and John F. Kennedy, 1963. C.S. Lewis was a brilliant writer, and he became a convert in his adult years to Christianity. He wrote a number of books, seven books for children called The Chronicles of Narnia, and three novels that discuss what angels are really like. It's a science fiction series. The first one's short, next one's middle, the last one's about 400 pages. Taken together, it's about 700 pages. The power of those three books, called the Space Trilogy, I've bottled up into four quotations. I'm going to read them to you right now. Because those, those books, the three books called the Space Trilogy, <clears throat> are a novel about what would it be like if you could actually meet angels. And that's why I would recommend you to read, for, especially the first two books. They're shorter. What would it be like if you met angels? Let me read some quotes. He, that's the hero in the book, when he meets an angel, he felt a tingling of his blood and a pricking on his fingers as if lightning were near him, and his heart and body seemed to be made out of water. In another place he says, Suddenly he saw what he thought was a rod of colored light, whose color no one could name or even picture. He saw light. I don't even know what to call that. I can't even picture it, but it's light. It's some color. The light darted between them, no more to see than that. But seeing was the least part of the experience. Can you imagine that? Seeing light, and then as soon as it's gone, you think, I heard the light. I felt the light. I tasted the light. And I can't even put a word on it. Next, next quote. It was fiery, sharp, bright, and ruthless. He's describing the angel when the angel comes down. This is a different part of the book. It was fiery, sharp, bright, and ruthless, ready to kill, ready to die, outspeeding light itself. Then describing the people in the room, all the men were suddenly blinded, scorched, Deafened, they thought the angel would burn their bones. They could not bear that it should continue, but they could not bear that it should cease. And then as the greatest angel enters the room, he describes the way they feel this way. Quote, before the other angels, a man might sink, but before this one, a man might die. But if he lived at all, he would laugh. Can you understand that? Before this angel, you felt like you would die. But maybe if you didn't die, you might laugh. The fear of God and the joy of God. 
bundled in. If you caught one breath of the air that came from the angel, you would have felt yourself taller than before. I think I just grew. Last quote. Some people thought that these and the other angels were the one true God. That's not the quote. Here's the quote. Some of the people in the room thought, this must be the one true God. But listen, they little dreamed by how many degrees the stairs of angels can rise, even among angels, until it spreads on into infinity below the one true God. What he says is, when they saw an angel, they thought, this must be God! Because they didn't imagine how great angels can be until they just trail off and then far, far, infinitely far above them is God himself and the Lord Jesus Christ at his right hand, ruling and reigning. If angels don't dare to answer Satan, if they limit themselves, here's the hook. Limit yourself. Hold your tongue. Bow. Don't complain. Don't question God. Throw away that bitterness. Serve the person who doesn't deserve it because you're nothing compared to these angels and you're nothing compared to God. Let's close our eyes.